So first, I'd like to say thank you for the invitation to speak and to say how pleased I am to be here today. Um, secondly, to say this is a work in progress, so I welcome your questions and your criticisms. Um, third point, the two terms, Persia and Iran, I use them interchangeably, as you'll see very shortly. And finally, I'd like to extend special thanks to Dr. Roham Alvandi for the very uh, lovely uh, invitation to speak to you today. So to start with the Nazi-Soviet pact, so on August the 23rd, 1939, two ideological enemies entered into a famous non-aggression agreement which ushered in the violence of the Second World War. Now this Nazi-Soviet pact, as is well known, brought together Hitler's Germany and Stalin's Soviet Union in the destruction and acquisition of Poland. The pact is a very well-known topic in the history of the Second World War, and it's most often analyzed as a political agreement that operated inside of a European framework. It was, however, also much more than this. The Pact of August the 23rd was both preceded and supplemented by economic agreements, and these were vital to what it signified and to how it worked. A commercial and credit agreement of August the 19th, 19th 1939, exchanged 200 million marks of German, German military equipment to the Soviet Union for a corresponding amount of Soviet raw materials to Germany. So 200 million marks in that exchange. This provided the practical foundation for the political rapprochement of four days later. Between August 1939 and the German attack on the Soviet Union in June of 1941, a series of commercial and credit agreements, there are three of them after the pact, they arranged for similar transfers of military equipment and raw materials that totaled over 600 million Reichsmark. It is in this sense that it is said that the pact had a quote-unquote economic rationale. And one could say that the, that the political agreement that it sealed rode on top a system of economic exchange which stretched between Hitler's Germany and Stalin's Soviet Union. And what I want to say to you here is that this system of economic exchange was not created in 1939, but is in fact older. It was based in long-standing relationships between economies described as mutually dependent, the German and the Russian, and it reached beyond Europe. Its specific places are put into place in the aftermath of World War I. So the economic underpinnings of the pact are understudied, and its non-European aspects are virtually unknown. These had a different genealogy and operated through much broader geography than is often remembered. So I say all this by way of introduction to say that today I'd like to take a fresh look at the Nazi-Soviet pact by situating it in the history of economic relations between Germany, the Soviet Union, and Iran between 1921 and 1941. Now, following the First World War, Iran was both an object of continuing great power interest and it was a new national state in its own right. So it has this kind of difficult and new position. The Persian connections in the making of German-Soviet economic policy and then the place of Iran in the pact system that develops, this will be my subject today. So a, br a brief point on methodology to say that if one looks at the Nazi-Soviet pact only through the lens of bilateral relations, one misses this, the transnational context out of which it arises and in which it operates. So rather than investigating bilateral relations here, either German-Soviet, Soviet-Persian, or Persian-German, all of that's actually been done. So rather than doing that, I want to focus on a constellation of relations between these three states. So at the very least, a triangle rather than a bilateral relationship. Bilateral relationships are also generally viewed in a contained fashion, which extends the metaphor of the nation state as a container. While these constellations, here we think about networks with links kind of radiating outward into a honeycomb of relationships, and they have something rather uncontained about them, 
or actions in one part of the system can send reverberations through the system as a whole. So today I want to analyze shifts, to tell you where I'm going, analyze shifts in this German-Persian-Soviet constellation during three extended moments. The first, during the Rapallo period, 1921 to 1928, where the, taking the name from the Rapallo Treaty, between Germany and the Soviet Union of 1922. So that's the first one, the Rapallo period. Secondly, the place of Iran in the Nazi new order of Reich economics minister Hilmar Schacht. This is from 1935 to 1939. That's the second. And thirdly, the, the period of the pact itself and its supplementary agreements, 1938 when, it, when the discussions start to 1941 focusing on the role of the German Foreign Office and its vision of economic empire, and then also discussing the way that Iran tried to hold its balance inside of this international system. So two to start with the Rapallo period. The foundation for cooperation between Germany, Iran, and the Soviet Union lay in the period immediately following the First World War. In 1918, with the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk and afterwards, the German Foreign Office, first they thought they had won the war at that point, in the spring of 1918, and the German Foreign Office looked east with economic interest in mind. They were going to, the Russian Empire would disintegrate and Germany would then extend its economic hegemony over this area. This was what was called its Eurasian strategy in 1918, based on economic expansion into Russia, the Near East, and Central Asia. And this took shape in the closing months of the war. Now, defeat in the fall of 1918 had dimmed, but not destroyed these hopes. And they were carried into the foreign policy of the Weimar Republic by a group of men with experience in the Russian and Near Eastern theaters of war. These, were, these are men with very high-ranking diplomats with a great deal of expertise who come out of these Russian, actually the Russian and Ottoman theaters of war. These are Germany's Russia experts. They include Smanhir Ulrich from Brockdorf Ranzau, incidentally the man who puts Lenin on the train to <laughs> St. Petersburg. Um, Ulrich von Brockdorf Ranzau, who was Weimar Germany's first foreign minister and ambassador to the Soviet Union after 1922. This man here, General Hans von Siegt, who's the chief of staff to Enver Pasha uh, during the war. He is head of the Reichswehr during the Weimar Republic, and he's the director of the program of secret rearmament in the Soviet Union after 1921. This man here, who's going to be very important, this is Count Friedrich Werner von der Schulenburg. He's the interwar minister to Tehran in 1923. He's Germany's ambassador to the Soviet Union after 1934, and he is an author of the economic sections of the Nazi Soviet Pact. And this man, there we go, Ago von Marzan. Head of the Eastern Department of the Foreign Office in 1921, architect of the Rapallo Treaty with the Soviet Union and the ambassador, oddly enough, the ambassador to the United States then after 1924. These Russia experts in the Foreign Office were matched on the Soviet side by its foreign policy Germanophiles. These included the Foreign Minister Georgi Chicherin, who is Commissar for Foreign Affairs after Trotsky, and the free-floating Bolshevik intellectual Karl Radek with his raft of German connections. Chicherin, in fact, began his diplomatic career as an archivist researching the Anglo-Russian conflict, and he knew a great deal about Iran. In Iran, these Soviet and German diplomats are connected to nationalist politicians in the emerging government of Reza Khan, later Reza Shah Pahlavi. And many of these men had wartime connections to Germany. They included this man here, the diplomat Sahamadin Afari, who was Persian minister in Bern, delegate to the League, Persian delegate to the League of Nations, and he had studied economics in Germany before the war. The politician Hassan Pirnia, 
who as prime minister in Iran in 1915 had tried to broker an alliance with Germany, and the leader of the wartime Persian Committee in Berlin, Hassan Takizadeh, who left Berlin in the early 1920s to become Iran's economic negotiator in Moscow. So we, here we have some of the cast of characters. No more pictures for right now. But the year was 1921. These three countries were each moving through a period of transition in which economic issues loomed large. Each had passed through wartime defeat and revolution, albeit of radically different sorts in, in, in the aftermath. All had lost empires and crowned heads, or in Iran's case, were in the process of doing so. These three former monarchies were now states with new powers at the helm. Impoverished and isolated, and at odds with the Versailles system, which made them all into pariahs, they saw economic recovery as central to state survival. Soviet policy shifted in 1921 as hopes for a revolution in Germany had dimmed and the economic realists in the party took control. The new economic policy then provided the opening for the recalibration of, of these relationships. And it's said that the new economic policy, the NEP, expressed Lenin's belief that, quote, the most urgent task was the economic reconstruction of the country, which had been ruined by almost seven years of foreign and civil war, end of quote. Now, the NEP made direct appeal to foreign capital and, quote, made concessions to foreign capitalism, encouraging traders and manufacturers in the capitalist countries to participate in the economic reconstruction of Soviet Russia, end of quote. Now, the push for revolutionary action in the Near East and Central Asia, as expressed at the Congress of Peoples at Baku in September 1920, that moment was gone, had passed. And new priorities had come into view. It's not often mentioned that the NEP came together with the securing of Soviet power throughout the Caucasus and the signing of friendship treaties with Turkey, Iran, and Afghanistan. These rescinded the earlier goal of revolutionizing the region, opting instead for so-called good neighbor policies in which economic development was paramount. On the Iranian side, one of the first acts of its new government, created by the nationalist coup d'etat of Zia ad-Din Tabatabai and Reza Khan on February the 21st, 1921, one of the first things it does five days after it's in power is to sign a treaty of commerce and friendship with Soviet Russia on February the 26th. Now, 1921 saw an acceleration of German plans for rapprochement with the Soviet Union. And the German foreign office, the German politics really swings from a pro-Western to a pro-Eastern focus in between the spring and the fall of 1921. Now, between Germany and the Soviet Union, what's interesting is that between their two economies, a relationship of mutual dependence went back 30 years to the 1890s. This was formalized in their 1894 commercial treaty and this relationship had sent Russian raw materials, grain, oil, manganese, cotton, iron ore, sent these materials into Germany, and German machinery and industrial technology into Russia. Since the 1860s, German companies had contributed centrally to Russian industrialization. Siemens had Russian offices and built Russian telegraph and railroad systems, and in 1913, the German electric company, the AEG, was in the forefront of the electrification of the Russian Empire. By 1914, Germany had been Russia's premier trading partner for 20 years already. So this is a very established and very important relationship. And restarting this relationship in 1921 was the aim of the Russia experts. In 1921, it picks up speed pressured by the signing of an Anglo-Soviet agreement in March 1921, the Weimar government signs its own friendship treaty with the Bolsheviks on May the 6th, 1921. With its formal recognition of the Bolshevik government by Germany, 
it opened the way to economic rapprochement. For it was clear that industrial revival in Germany was necessary for her to pay the reparations owed under the Versailles Treaty. And on the Soviet side, the NEP needed the backing of German heavy industry to succeed. So the talks went forward, as it said, on three levels, economic, military, and political. Companies such as Junkers, AEG, and the Stinnes Steel Trust all worked toward what was called a Berlin-Moscow alliance. Now this story is fairly well known, but what is never mentioned in this context was Iran's place in these developments. For the road to Rapallo was also paved with Persian connections. So the road to Rapallo, I'll repeat that, was also paved with Persian connections. In the words of a German diplomat, quote, Iran was a difficult but extremely important post in the Near East, not only because of economic relations, the supply of oil above all, but also with regard to the British-Soviet antagonism, end of quote, which was fundamental to German foreign policy, the relationship with Britain and with the Soviet Union, or this British-Soviet antagonism. Now, northern Iran had been an object of Russian interest since at least the 1870s, and since 1910, Germany had harbored its own plans for economic development in Iran. At the end of the war, the British stood as the dominant power in Iran. The Anglo-Persian Agreement of August 1919 moved the country toward its new status as a British protectorate, and the nationalist press in Iran fulminated against this agreement, seeing Britain as the enemy of Iranian sovereignty. Lord Curzon, for his part, saw German support for the Iranian nationalist movement, which was very strong and important. Curzon saw this, this German support for Iranian nationalism as particularly suspect. So if the Soviet Union and Germany needed each other to maneuver through the post-Versailles world, for Iran, German help and Soviet support were necessary instruments to secure national sovereignty against overwhelming British influence. And it's this point that is emphasized by the German Foreign Office. Tehran was not a place apart in this regard, but a vital link in a diplomatic circuit. It's also a place in which Germany and the Soviet Union could practically cooperate and did practically cooperate in Tehran, which then helped to pave the way toward rapprochement between Berlin and Moscow. So diplomatic correspondence reveals that in 1921, the process of German-Soviet economic cooperation is pushed forward by Persian developments and Persian actions. And a fascinating three-way conversation unfolds between May 1921 and September 1922. The celebration of the third anniversary of the Bolshevik Revolution at a dinner in Moscow on November the 7th, 1920, gives a hint of Germany's place in this constellation. Germany's representative in Moscow, a man named Gustav Hilger, he'd been invited to attend this dinner. And he reports that he's seated at Chicherin's right hand, but he is surprised to find himself to be the only Western representative at a dinner with prominent Afghan, Turkish, and Persian delegates. In May 1921, Soviet and Persian representatives began in tandem to pressure Germany to expand its economic footprint in Iran. In May, Chicherin gave Soviet backing to the Hamburg firm Vonkhaus to its projects in northern Persia, including the project to establish a Middle Asian bank. In August, a German foreign office report with the title The Opening of Persia made a strong case for German involvement in Iran. It was written by a young official named Joseph Zorch, who then worked at the Tehran legation in the mid-20s, and the report was intended for Foreign Minister Friedrich Rosen, who was himself an Orientalist and a distinguished scholar of Persian literature. The appearance of this report dovetailed with the secret military mission to Moscow, which arranged for rearmament and training for the Reichswehr in cooperation with the Red Army. That's one of the most controversial topics of this whole period, the secret military mission. But that mission was also led by one of these 
German veterans of Pausian Politik, wartime Pausian Politik, as it was called, it was led by Oskar Ritter von Niedermeyer. So in 1921, reports from Tehran moved business forward in Berlin. These reports were written by the German charge d'affaires, a man named Rudolf Sommer, and he had served in the Iranian capital since the height of the war. Now, the legation had officially closed in 1916, and official relations were suspended, but it's interesting. Sommer stays on, and he mans the desk. So there are no official relations, but he's still there. And he's moving business along. What he does, he uses the legation as a listening post and to support the Iranian nationalist movement. He simply scratches the word imperial off of the official note paper. So you see his reports, and the word Kaiserlich is scratched off because Germany's had a revolution. It's now a republic. So he scratches that off. But then he, he just forges on, and he moves business along. Now, officially, he's restricted to writing reports. That's all he's allowed to do. But these reports give a clear mapping of Germany's aims in the region, and he's not without influence. He's also very busy. He works together with the Soviet ambassador to Tehran, a man named Theodor Rothstein, who himself belonged to Chitrin's camp of economic realists. Now, some are advocated German involvement in Iran in concert with Soviet projects. As he wrote, and I quote, Herr Rothstein remarked again yesterday that sooner or later it would be necessary for Russia to further the idea of founding a bank in Persia in order to break the monopoly of the British Imperial Bank. He would look favorably on German participation in this matter as he would approve in general German work and capital in the economic penetration of northern Persia. He emphasized in this connection the strong resistance that Soviet Russia was finding with a Western-oriented German government, end of quote. Now, Zolch's report had furthered the aims of this pro-Western side of the German foreign office. It took a combative stance towards Soviet interests in Iran and recommended that Germany should simply take over these existing Russian concessions in Iran for its own economic benefit. Summer, by contrast, goes in what was called a pro-Eastern and pro-Iranian direction, he reports on Soviet plans for railroads, telegraphs, and banks, and he advocates German-Soviet cooperation. As he, wrote, he, as he wrote, quote, we should accommodate these wishes as being in our fundamental self-interest, for we wish to retrieve for our trade a solid foundation in Iran, and we can do this only in closest cooperation with Russia and with her representatives here who are very well-intentioned toward us, end of quote. Now, for some, including the foreign minister, Friedrich Rosen, Sommer's pro-Eastern stance went too far. Rosen disciplined him for attending the reopening of the Russian embassy in Tehran as a German representative. With regard to Hilger and his attempts to forge Soviet-German cooperation in Moscow, Rosen met him in Berlin with the cool words, Hello, Hilger. I hear that you are a communist. Now, Sommer and Hilger went on to have long careers in the German Foreign Office. Hilger, and we'll see him again, he is a fixture at the Moscow Embassy from the 1920s through the 1940s, really to the end of the war, and Sommer would be promoted to consul in Kharkov in 1923 and then advanced to higher positions in Kiev and in Leningrad. Rosen's career, however, was a casualty of the shifting political winds in the fall of 1921, as his pro-British foreign policy was moved aside for the men of the Eurasian persuasion. By November 1921, Rosen no longer had a voice on German-Soviet matters, and Ago von Madsen took control. Now, historians have noted that the German-Soviet rapprochement as an alliance of the German right with the Soviet left was the oddest of political animals. This is true in 1939, and it's true in 1921. And the workhorses of this relationship on the German side, men like Hilger and Sommer, they were not Bolsheviks, nor were they sympathetic to Bolshevism. They're not at all. They and their superiors in the Foreign Office, Schulenburg, Brockdorf, and Maud San, are conservative nationalists. 
These men saw national interest at stake and an abiding concern, get to this in a minute, and an abiding concern for sovereignty and for position in a post-Versailles world motivates all of these players. And this is very clear on the Iranian side, as was the sympathy of the Iranian nationalist movement toward Germany. At the, at the end of August 1921, this man here, the Persian minister in Bern, Sahameddin Afari, he takes up these arguments for German economic involvement. This is his title at the Banam Zoka Adoli. Now, he is a tremendously capable man. He is a member of the Iranian delegation to the Paris Peace Conference. He's later the Persian delegate to the League of Nations. He steps up the, his, the campaign for German involvement during a trip he takes to Germany in November 1921 to speak with business leaders. He meets also with German Chancellor Joseph Wirth, and at this meeting, Afari took the opportunity to appeal to Wirth, to Wirth for the official reopening of Germany's Tehran legation and spoke then of the possible acquisition of oil and timber concessions. In December 1921, German-Soviet discussions advance in Berlin, and a German-Persian counterpart takes place in Moscow. The Persian ambassador in Moscow, Muchava al-Mamalik, who pushes for these discussions, was, like Afari, a member of the delegation to the Paris Peace Conference, and he was also a strong supporter of German-Soviet cooperation, economic cooperation in Iran. And these conversations were stepping stones to then the signing of the Rapallo Treaty between Germany and the Soviet Union in April 1922. This is uh, from a German magazine, Simplicissimus, showing it's about, it says here, a beginning. This is about the Rapallo Treaty. This is Germany and Russia, as it says, Deutschland und Russland, which you could have a run here, too, where they've joined together, and now they're stepping out of defeat from the war and moving forward into the post-war period with the Rapallo Treaty. Now, in September 1922, a few months after the signing of the Rapallo Treaty, Schulenburg, who we'll also see again, actually quite a lot, Schulenburg and Chicherin meet at the Soviet Embassy in Berlin. Schulenburg was on his way to Iran as the new German consul, but Chicherin dominated their conversation. He told Schulenburg how pleased he had been with German-Soviet relations in Tehran, and he hoped that they would continue under Schulenburg's watch. He emphasized the Soviet Union's fundamental interest in Persia, connected as it was to both Baku oil and the protection of Soviet interests in the Caspian Basin. The Soviet Union had proceeded carefully with the Tehran government, as Chicherin related, and enjoyed good relations with it. The competition with Britain and the United States over the northern Persian oil fields was a pressing issue. He stressed to Schulenburg that it was important not to let Iran fall back under British control due to its economic weakness. <clears throat> Iran needed strong backers. As Chicherin emphasized, and I quote, the difficulty is that Persia desperately needs money, which Russia cannot provide. England, through the Imperial Bank, makes the granting of funds dependent on the transfer of the northern Persian oil fields to Standard Oil. Simultaneously, England incites trouble amongst the Kurds and in this fashion increases the financial emergency of the Persian government. Thus, it is to be feared that Persia, sooner or later, will be forced to give way to English pressure. The British government appears to be content to quietly await the moment when the ripe Persian apple falls into her lap. He, Chicherin, had hoped that it would be possible for Germany to support Russia in her fight against English actions in northern Persia." End of quote. Now, Schulenburg responded by acknowledging, as he said, quote, the extraordinary Russian interest in northern Persia, end of quote, and said that he hoped to work closely with the Russian representative in Tehran. German support would be all the more forthcoming, he remarked, if Russia would reopen the Caucasian transit routes into Iran. These are the railroad routes through uh, the Caucasus and down into Tabriz and to Tehran. Now, this issue of the Caucasian transit routes, this is an old and contentious issue. And trade between the Far East 
the Indian Ocean, and Europe flowed through this corridor, which would now be called what would now be called a choke point of global commerce. This corridor was vital to the economic relations between these three players, and it also highlights Iran's geopolitical position and its geopolitical importance. So through this corridor, the Soviet Union was a transit zone for German goods to Iran, um, also to the Persian Gulf, German goods to Iran, to the Persian Gulf, and to African and Indian Ocean ports. Through this corridor, Iranian goods also traveled to Europe. If we get an idea about how these areas become transit zones for the other, for each other, for her part, Germany is the conduit for credit and goods into the Soviet Union and Iran from Western Europe. And if we think about the Soviet, this is a bit confusing, but if you think about this constellation and how the three players, things transit through these zones to each other, credit and goods come from Western Europe into the Soviet Union and Iran through Germany. And for the Soviet Union, if you think about the Soviet Union, the Soviet Union has access to credit markets and industrial technology with German help on the one hand from Germany, and then on the other with Iranian help, the Soviet Union retains a traditional Eastern market for its finished goods on the other. So this transit zone is really vital to how these relations work. And this system then paid benefits throughout the 1920s. So to move to the second moment, oops, that's not right. There we go. To the second moment, uh, Schulenburg here on the left. This is a later picture, this is from 1930. And this is court minister uh, Timur Tash. But Schulenburg here, he goes to Tehran as minister in 1923, where he worked to open Iran to German business, worked very successfully to open Iran to German business. During his tenure, Germany's largest firms, Junkers, aviation firm, this is such an interesting picture because you have this meeting of two, this is from 1925, Junkers aircraft in Iran. During Schulenburg's tenure, Germany's largest firms, Junkers, the AEG, and Philipp Holtzmann, among others, become involved in Iranian industrialization. Philipp Holtzmann receives, together with the Scandinavian consortium, in 1928, the concession to build the Trans-Iranian Railway. Now, Karl Schnurre, Karl Schnurre is a man who became Germany's lead economic negotiator for the pact discussions in 1939. But Schnurre, first, his first job for the Foreign Office is in Tehran in 1928, where he works with Schulenburg in drafting the new legal framework for the German-Iranian relationship following uh, the, the cancellation of the concession system in 1928. So Reza Shah cancels the concession system, and Germany then works out a whole new legal framework for its trade with Iran. And this is the work of Schulenburg and Schnurre. And you will see them again working there, the two who negotiate together the economic se sections of the Nazi-Soviet pact. And they know each other. They, they, Schulenburg and Schnurre know each other from this period in Tehran in 1928. Now, German engineers, experts, and companies went to Iran in the 1920s and the 1930s in the service of heavy industrial projects. Raw materials then flowed back into Germany. This relationship intensified in the mid-1930s, actually as a low point in the early 1930s, which I could talk about later, but it begins to build back again after 1934, under the influence of this man, the Reich economics minister, Hilmar Schacht. Now, Schacht has the distinction of being the only high Nazi official with a systematic plan for the expansion of German influence into the Middle East. His outreach to Turkey and to Iran was connected to his aim to recalibrate Germany's global trade network by orienting it away from Great Britain and the United States as much as, as was possible. His preferred methods were clearing agreements, this is, obvious, this is obviously Hitler, and this is <laughs> Schacht, 
His, uh, here we go, here he is. His preferred methods for recalibrating Germany's global trade network were clearing agreements and bilateral treaties with modernizing economies in Latin America, Southeastern Europe, and the Middle East. In the words of historian Adam Tooze, these agreements were, quote, a selective policy of disengagement directed above all against the United States, the British Empire, and to a lesser degree, France, end of quote. So away from those trade partners and toward uh, mainly Chile, Brazil, Iran, and Turkey. Now, Schacht's plans found an interested audience in Iran, for they matched Reza Shah's aim to both industrialize the country while also disengaging it from the Soviet Union, which is Iran's largest trading partner. The way to do this was by strengthening Iran's ties to, the, to what's been called third powers, both the United States and Nazi Germany. Now, a clearing payments agreement between Nazi Germany and Turkey was signed in 1933. A similar agreement with Iran followed in 1935. A consortium of heavy industrial firms, including major German steel producers, was established in March 1936 in Berlin. This was the so-called Iran Consortium, which was going to facilitate this clearing payments agreement of Schacht's. And payments then flowed through the Bank Meli, the national bank in Iran, which was originally founded in 1928 with a German director. Now, Schacht's official visit to Tehran in November 1936 moved plans forward, and a raft of contracts then came in the wake of his visit. By 1937, German firms played a vital role in the industrialization and modernization of the Iranian economy. They're not the only players, but they are certainly major players. With German-Iranian trade rising from a paltry 8% in 1933 to an astonishing 41% in 1939. Now, as a leading scholar of Iranian foreign policy has written, this is Ruhala Ramazani, Reza Shah, quote, made economic self-sufficiency by means of rapid industrialization a cherished objective of his government. German capital and technical know-how were sought to further that goal. And German investment in and technical aid to Iran involved almost every branch of Iranian industry, end of quote. So by the late 1930s, by the late 1930s, Germany's position in Iran was highly developed. By 1940-1941, the economic relationship was at its height, with the Nazi state enjoying the position of Iran's foremost trade partner. The statistics are striking. 1941, German imports to Iran made up 48% of the national total. Exports to Germany stood at 42% of the national total of Iranian exports. IG Farben, Ferrostahl, Junkers, Krupp, AEG, Siemens, Lufthansa, Lufthansa and Hochtief all pursued projects in Tehran. By contrast, by the late 1930s, Iranian trade with the Soviet Union had almost fully ceased, and the Soviets closed the transit corridor in 1938. So I'd like to turn now to the Nazi-Soviet pact uh, specifically. This is an image of the signing of the pact. This Molotov here. Control. Joseph Stalin, <laughs> the major players here. Now, how the pact came about continues to be a controversial topic, with historians disagreeing on which side took the initiative and which issues actually drove these discussions. But economic issues played a significant role in these negotiations, and Iran will hold a particular place in the system, the pact system that develops. Now, that while the political talks were notoriously stop and start and they were fiendishly complicated because they intersected with the concurrent discussions that the Soviet Union was, was having with Britain and France, Germany, for its part, was also trying to woo Japan, some of these different, uh, very complicated political discussions going on that are very complicated. But on the economic front, negotiations between Germany and the Soviet Union were surprisingly straightforward. 
The needs of German rearmament sparked the discussions, and mutual interest then provided their foundation. Trade was still the bedrock of the German-Soviet relationship. During the coldest period of political relations, and they were extremely cold between 1933 and 1938, trade had declined significantly, but had still carried on. Now, in the fall of 1938, Schulenburg, who is now the ambassador to Moscow, he broaches the idea of a longer-term economic agreement with the Soviets. Moreover, he argues that the difficulties in the overall relationship could be approached via, quote, the easier path of the economy, end of quote. Now, from December 1938 to July 1939, when the political discussions then begin in earnest, the economic negotiations carried out by, Sch by Schulenburg and Karl Schnurre, yeah, this, is an this is from Schnurre's memoir, Actually, this is the Soviet, uh, pardon me, the German embassy in Moscow. And this is here, this is Karl Schnurde, who's the lead economic negotiator. This is here, Schulenburg. This is Gustav Hilger, who we've seen before. And this is Karl Ritter, who's a special ambassador. He's Hitler's envoy to this process. This is really the group that will hammer out these economic issues. So these economic negotiations carried out mainly by Schulenburg and Karl Schnurre on the German side, they provide momentum then to the negotiations as a whole. Starting in April 1939, Schnurre met regularly with the Soviet charged affair in Berlin, a man named Georgi Astahov. And there's some, some historians think he was a NKVD plant, and others say that he wasn't. But Astahov and Schnurre in Berlin then test out at this relatively low level ideas that were later carried up the chain to Schulenburg and Molotov in Moscow. With Astahov and later with Anastas Mikoyan, who is the Soviet Commissar for Foreign Trade, Schnurre hammered out the details of this new relationship. So his role in the negotiations was greater than previously thought. For it is Schnurre who goes to the Berghof on May the 10th to brief Hitler, Ribbentrop, and the heads of the military on the desirability of economic rapprochement with the Soviet Union. Now, this normally would have been Schulenburg's job to do, but he is in Tehran at the wedding of these two. And this is a later picture because they didn't have the, the child when they were married. This is a picture from the 1950s, but this is the wedding of Mohammed Reza Shah with Princess Fuzia of Egypt. And so Schulenburg was in Tehran for this wedding, and so it's Schnurre who then goes to the Berghof to brief Hitler. At the end of May, well, Goering's rearmament office is pushing for these talks, and at the end of May, Schnurre reports to State Secretary von Weizsäcker and the Foreign Office on the utility of this economic agreement. By the end of May, then, the decision to forge ahead was taken by the German side, and Schulenburg is instructed to move matters forward with Molotov. On August the 19th, a credit agreement, this is the August 19th agreement that I started with, with the 200 million marks at its core of exchange. With Germany sends military weaponry and industrial technology into the Soviet Union. Soviet Union sends raw materials for Germany's war economy. This is Schnurre here, and the, so, um, the sort of lead economic negotiator in Berlin, this is Mene Babarin. Um, this is the Soviet embassy in Berlin. So they signed, this credit agreement is signed in Berlin August 19th. Ribbentrop and Molotov sign the non-aggression pact in Moscow four days later. Now, the August 19th agreement and then the supplementary treaties, there's a lot that comes after the pact that then builds out and extends the system. There are three of them, the Border and Commercial Treaty of September 28, 1939, the Economic Treaty of February 1940, and the Economic Treaty of January 1941. These, together with the pact, connect the war economies of Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union. They exchange military technology and weaponry. Germany is basically arming the Soviet Union 
before it attacks it. Um, this is not often talked about, but if you look at what's exchanged to each side and what, what each wants from the other, military technology and weaponry go into the Soviet Union, and, and materials for Germany's war economy, really essential materials, come from the Soviet Union into Germany. They include oil, iron ore, manganese, chrome, and platinum, and grain, mainly. And manganese is actually extremely important for producing um, very high-quality steel. And Germany has always had to import manganese from the Soviet Union. In 1914, it's importing 70% of its manganese from the Soviet Union. This is a very long, it's very typical that, that the German steel industry imports these kinds of things out of first the Russian Empire and then the Soviet Union. So, so these supplementary agreements work with that system, which is built out at a... At a high level, and they also begin to map the terrain of a vast German-Soviet trade area. Now, through these agreements, Iran is repositioned vis-a-vis -vis both parties and given a very difficult balancing act to perform. Deeply fearful of Soviet intentions, her industrial economy was dependent on German support. Yet, as her politicians insisted, she was not a Nazi puppet. Iran declared neutrality in September 1939 and sought to follow an independent course. In a parliamentary debate in October 1939 in the Majlis, her ministers discussed the country's changed situation due to the war. In September 1939, the British had imposed a blockade on Germany. And this had great impacts on German shipping in the Persian Gulf. So this British blockade was now an issue of real concern. So what to do? What position should Iran take inside of the system that was unfolding around her? Now, Trade Minister Sadek Vasegi and Finance Minister Mahmoud Bader set out the opposing arguments in the Majlis. Vasegi expressed doubt whether Iran should, should hold herself exclusively to Nazi Germany for her industrial needs. And he advocates outreach instead toward Italy and toward Japan. Now, Italian ships were allowed into the Gulf, and Japanese firms had already begun to set down an economic footprint in Iran in the late 1930s. So Vasagi is saying, we can move away from Germany and toward in these other directions. Bader, by contrast, argued for continuing the economic relationship to Germany as vital to the national interest. Trade was to be kept at the 1939 level with goods shipped now through the Soviet Transit Corridor. If Gulf shipping is going to be blocked, then the Soviet Transit Corridor becomes all the more important. And he argues that the Germans can pressure the Soviets to reopen the corridor. Reza Shah supported Bader's argument, strongly advocating the German connection as central to state interest. So with the September 1939 agreement, this is the one of September the 28th, about a month after the pact signing of the next trade agreement. This is a Nazi journal called the Eastern Economy, Ostwirtschaft. So with the September 28th, 1939 agreement, the Soviets reopened the trade corridor in response to German pressure. And in the fall of 1939, this Nazi journal, Die Ostwirtschaft, this is the issue of October-November 1939, where it says here, large-scale German-Soviet economic planning. Uh, this journal reported on the transit of goods through the USSR from Iran, Afghanistan, and the Far East. So this is the, the next, this is the title page. The next page you see here is the article on transit from Iran and the Far East. And then another sort of short notice here that says Wirtschaftsverhandlungen mit Iran. This short notice says that the transit corridor has now once again been opened. Now, Iran and the Soviet Union begin negotiations. This relationship is extremely cold in 1939, but they begin to negotiate again in the winter and spring of 1939, and Iran and the Soviet Union then signed their own new commercial treaty in April of 1940. So Iran was once again a transfer zone for goods 
and an area of German-Soviet cooperation, its economic importance to Germany heightened by the British blockade. As a recent summary put it, after 1939, quote, Iran became a a significant transit corridor through which the Germans could safely transport raw materials, such as tin, rubber, and manganese, from Indonesia and Indochina for their military industries, end of quote. Germany also began drawing materials from Iran, which she had previously obtained from Burma, Thailand, Indochina, Egypt, Canada, oddly enough, and South Africa, so rice, cotton, wool, and wheat. In October 1939, the Reich Economics Ministry lists Iran as a, quote, supplier of vital raw materials, end of quote, And in March 1940, the Nazi minister in Tehran, a man named Erwin Eto, who was not a career diplomat, but himself a former Junkers employee, who was then raised up to become the Nazi minister in Tehran in, in 1940, Eto proudly noted to Berlin that, quote, a considerable percentage of Germany's imports of raw materials come from Iran, end of quote. But Eto liked to brag And these amounts were, in the grand scheme of things, they they were important, but they were relatively small. Now, one suspects that Iran's real worth to Nazi Germany at this point lay in its quality as a buffer zone, shielding the Baku and Caucasian oil fields from Allied attack. Baku produced 80% of the aviation oil and 96% of the petrol in the Soviet Union. And both of these products were central to the Nazi-Soviet agreements. Between January and April 1940, Iran refused to allow French planes to use its airspace for an attack on Baku. But neutrality cut both directions. Iran also refused to allow Germany to ship weapons across her territory or to use her petroleum to aid the pro-Nazi coup d'etat of Rashid Ali against the British in Iraq in 1941. Iran closed no alliance with Germany, and her politicians sought to maintain her independence in the face of what was becoming overwhelming Nazi and Soviet pressure. As Ramazani noted long ago, quote, to Reza Shah, no foreign power could be fully trusted, end of quote. This lesson was brought home in the late fall of 1940, by the, quote, near panic which swept Iran when Molotov's visit to Berlin was accompanied by rumors that in return for a free hand in the Dardanelles, Germany was offering Russia an equally free hand in Iran, end of quote. Now, the German Foreign Office insisted to Prime Minister Ali Mansour that these were rumors, that this was a lie, because Soviet expansion toward the Persian Gulf was indeed one of the items dangled before Molotov in Berlin. Molotov visits Berlin for the first and only time and meets Hitler, and there's a high-level negotiation between the two of them in November 1940, where they sort of make the, have these sorts of discussions. And the Germans do indeed dangle. Soviet, they say that uh, the Soviets will now have a free hand in Iran, or they offer that. Now, it was said that Molotov's visit was Schulenburg's idea. It was an attempt to expand the pact system into Turkey and Iran. And Schulenburg and Schnurre were invested in expanding this Nazi-Soviet system as a way to stave off a German military attack on Russia. And this system had possible benefits for Iran if she managed to preserve her neutrality and not to allow encroachments on her territory. Both of these were very big ifs in the late fall of 1940. So following Molotov's visit, negotiations go forward for the third commercial treaty, and that's the one signed here, the 10th of January 1941. This is Schnurre back here, and this is Schumannburg and Hilger and Molotov. So for this third commercial treaty, Schulenburg and Schnurra are pushing this forward, that the pact system should be expanded and this should, that there should not be a German military attack on the Soviet Union, that that would lead to disaster. So these negotiations are going forward for the third commercial treaty, signed on January the 10th, 1941. 
This was, in Schnurre's words, quote, the largest treaty that Germany had ever concluded, end of quote. It established a vast Nazi-Soviet trade zone extending from Finland to Siberia, from Leningrad to the Persian Gulf, a system of economic supply and security guarantees so extensive, Schulenburg and Schnurre hoped that there would be no need for war with Russia. Schnurre's own characterization of this treaty is illuminating. And here we have, this is Schnurre, this is from his memoir, this is Schnurre, and this is Anastas Mikulian, who's the Soviet, yes, I am coming to the end, Soviet trade uh, delegate, and actually, incidentally, the youngest member of the Politburo. This is uh, Schnurre and Mikoyan. So Schnurre's own characterization of this treaty is illuminating. And in his memoir, which was written in the 1970s, so he's looking back, he stated that it contained, quote, on the basis of reciprocity, the supply of Soviet goods to us that would secure for the long term, for the long term, our food and raw material needs. Animal feed, cotton, oil, phosphates, iron ore, chrome, platinum, non-ferrous metal, non-ferrous metals, other materials worth 640 million gold marks, together with deliveries that came from previous agreements, all of these things were included. These arrangements made it possible for us to purchase raw materials in the Far East and the Pacific via Soviet connections and to transport them to the Reich over the fastest route, the Siberian route. And these are the kinds of documents that would then accompany these treaties, these mapping out, these are industrial raw materials in the Soviet Union. So these large maps, which have a very military, actually very kind of military flavor to them. So State Secretary von Weizsäcker actually agreed with Schnurre at this point as he wrote, quote, we draw large amounts of goods from and through Russia. And together with Siberia, Russia is centrally important to our war economy and will be so in the future. End of quote. Schnurre even inserted an elegiac image into his memoir, nostalgic about what had not come to be, as he wrote, quote, even in the last hours before the outbreak of war, a train loaded with India rubber rolled from the Chinese border toward Berlin, end of quote. Now, Schnurre, and I am coming to the end, <laughs> this is the last, last bit, Schnurre had emphasized to Hitler, Ribbentrop, and Goering in the spring of 1941 so he has meetings with all of, all of these men. With this, he goes with this treaty. He says that with this treaty, quote, the gateway to the east stands open as far as the Pacific. The sphere of economic influence will once again be so expanded that we will be freed from worries about oil, metals, wheat, and other materials for the time being, end of quote. And Schnurre's tone at the conclusion of this treaty was triumphant. But this victory was hollow and swiftly overtaken by events. As, as was so often the case in German history, the foreign office would be fully undone by the military. The decision for Operation Barbarossa had already been taken. As Schulenburg discovered, when armed with, Sch with Schnurre's treaty, he made his final doomed case against a German attack to Hitler in Berlin. With the German invasion of the Soviet Union, Iran's fate was also sealed. She was jointly invaded by Great Britain and the Soviet Union in August 1941 and divided into spheres of influence eerily similar to those of an earlier time, the Anglo-Russian Convention of 1907. So to conclude very briefly, the historian Hartmut Polga von Strandmann wrote in 1976 in a seminal article on German-Soviet economic relations that international economics are often left out of international history. And this is still true today. In looking at the history of German expansion in the 20th century, we know a great deal about military power. We know less about these projects of economic expansion. And they're quite interesting because Germany's global power today is this economic power. And how these kinds of connections, these kinds of business connections, a number of these firms, Siemens in particular, have remarkably sort of stable, continuous histories, uh, starting really the relationship between Siemens and Russia, for example, from the 1860s, and how the connections that I mentioned today, how these play forward, these business connections, 
play forward into the post-war period is a fascinating story for itself. I'd like to leave you with this image of Schacht here. The left, this is Hilmar uh, Schacht and Mohammed Mossadegh in 1952. This image from 1952, which highlights Schacht's last act in the 1950s as economic consultant to nationalizing economies in Egypt, in Indonesia, and in Iran. So thank you very much, and I look forward to your questions.